Uh, good, uh, good morning again, everyone. It is uh, great to, to bring God's Word to you this morning. This morning marks the beginning of a new series here at Crosswinds Church. Uh, we're going to be going through the Gospel of Mark uh, for the next several months, maybe a year or so. Uh, it, this is a series that I am very excited about and one I'm really looking forward to. Uh, our congregation has been around for uh, four and a half years or so. This is our first time going through a gospel as a church, uh, uh, as a congregation. And so it, it's, it's just a good time for us to just look at who Jesus is and, and really follow follow this gospel from the beginning to the end just to understand more fully who Jesus is and what he has accomplished for us. And so that's what we're going to do with the gospel of Mark. And, and if I were to start by, by asking you a question, what do you know about the gospel of Mark? There is a possibility that some of you would say, well, not all that much. I don't know all that much about the gospel of Mark. If I were to ask you where you would rank it amongst the gospels of, of what you would say is your, your favorite gospel all the way down to, we would never say it this way, but our least favorite gospel, uh, I would guess that for many of you, this gospel would, would be placed behind John, Matthew, and Luke. Maybe not necessarily in that order, but Mark is, is traditionally one of the Gospels that we just don't know a lot about. We, we can look at John, we can look at Matthew, we can look at Luke, and we can see with some clarity uh, what the theology of that book, what the purpose of that book is about. So for John, we, we know it's, it's known for its descriptions and, and, and beautiful theology of who Jesus is. Matthew is, is known for his extended uh, teachings uh, that he contains uh, of Jesus. Luke is known for his detailed description of Jesus's birth. He's known for including many of the parables about Jesus. But what is Mark known for? And many of us may not have an answer. On a surface level, many of us could say that Mark seems to be lacking the same structure and purpose that the other gospels are, uh, that the other gospels contain. And in one sense, we may even say that this is an inferior gospel compared to the other ones. And so this morning, what I want us to do as we jump into this book, I just want us to look at the book as a whole. I want us to, to explore this book and hopefully help us to understand some of Mark's primary themes, uh, his purpose for writing this gospel, and how that in turn will help us to understand, as we go through this book, the unique and, and powerful qualities of this gospel. See, it is important as we jump into this book to recognize that Mark does indeed have a purpose for us when he is writing this gospel. He is writing with a purpose. He's not just interested in dispassionate facts about the events that, that happened surrounding Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth. He is certainly concerned with truth. He is concerned with truth, but his purpose is more than just a historical retelling of events. This is, after all, a gospel. It is an announcement of good news. And so Mark gives us a glimpse of his purpose in writing this book in the very first verse of this book. Mark chapter 1, verse 1 says this, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Here at the very beginning of Mark's writing, we see the purpose, or at least part of the purpose of this gospel. Mark is making a declaration of who Jesus is. He's not just presenting facts and leading, leaving them up to the reader to decide or interpret for themselves. He is declaring that Jesus is the Christ. And then he declares that Jesus is the Son of God. These two titles, Christ, 
and Son of God are crucial titles in the book of Mark, and they will come up in two other places at two of the most important parts of this book. You see, Mark is actually written as a masterpiece, as a very unique purpose, one that is different than Matthew, different than Luke, different than John. It is a beautiful and powerful picture of who Jesus is and what that means for us today. And the way he writes, I think, is particularly important for us today as he describes who Jesus is and what that means for us today. And so as we go through this series over the next several months, at times we're going to reference other passages that that contain similar stories, parallel passages in Matthew and Luke and maybe even in John. But most of the time, we're just going to camp in the book of Mark, try to understand what Mark is trying to communicate when he writes or tells us about who Jesus is. And so this is what I want us to do this morning as we survey this gospel. As we begin this series on Mark, I want us to first just consider what we know about Mark as a person. What Mark the person, what Mark the man was like. What does the New Testament tell us? Does it tell us anything about the author of this gospel? And second, I want us to take that knowledge of who Mark is and and see how that will influence our reading of this gospel. And that's what this morning is all about as as we jump into this topic. I, I hope there's just one clear truth that sticks out to us as we introduce ourselves to this gospel, and that is this. The path of the disciple is the path of the cross. The path of the disciple is the path of the cross. Mark has a longer, at least proportionally, a longer passion narrative. He spends more time describing the events of Jesus' crucifixion than any of the other Gospels. In fact, uh, Mark has, has oftentimes been called a passion narrative with an extended introduction. If you notice as you're reading through Mark, Mark uses the word immediately a lot. He's, he's short, he's succinct because he's trying to get to the main point. He's trying to describe how these things lead to the cross. As we will see next week, Mark actually skips Jesus' birth. It's not because Mark doesn't care about Jesus' birth. It's because he's laser-focused on his purpose, on showing that Jesus is the Christ, but not just that Jesus is the Christ, also that he is a crucified Christ. And if you and I are going to be his disciple, if you and I are going to follow this Jesus, we must follow the same path. The path of the disciple is the path of the cross. Let's pray once more. Lord, as we uh, prepare to devote ourselves to this gospel on Sunday mornings for the foreseeable future, we ask that you would draw us ever closer to you, that you would help us to see you, Jesus, for who you truly are, that you are a king. But more than that, that we would see you as the king who went to the cross. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let's begin by looking at Mark the person. What do we know about Mark? Where is he mentioned in the, uh, in the New Testament? How do we know for sure that Mark is actually the author of this gospel? After all, this gospel, like the rest of the gospels, every single gospel that we have uh, is written anonymously. We don't have a, a byline at the beginning or the end. So how do we know that this was written by the man Mark? The answer, of course, is just... Uh, church tradition. It's been unanimous throughout church history, especially starting with the early church, that this was a gospel written by a man named John Mark. 
He is first encountered in the book of Acts. And as we get to know John Mark, as we follow his life as it's revealed in Acts and in a couple other spots in the New Testament, we actually see that the events of his life, what he experiences as he follows Christ, actually line up pretty well with the emphases, with the focuses, uh, foci, foci, I shouldn't have said that word. The emphases, we'll just stick with that one. The purposes, that's another good word, of the gospel of Mark. We look at this gospel and we see that this man, John Mark, experienced many of the things that are described uh, in this gospel. Mark was a man who grew up in the church, quite literally. The first time that we encounter John Mark is in Acts chapter 12. Many of you are familiar with Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12, there's this new wave of persecution that is hitting the church in Jerusalem under Herod, the king of, uh, of Palestine, of Judea at that time. This takes place around AD 44, which is about 14 to 15 years after the crucifixion and after the resurrection. So in Acts chapter 12, we see this story of how the apostle James is actually killed by Herod. Herod sees that this pleases the people of Jerusalem, and so he decides to to break out in persecution against the church, and he arrests the apostle Peter. And so Peter is kept in prison, and while he is in prison, the church begins praying for Peter's release. They begin to pray, God, would you release Peter? And sure enough, God answers that prayer. He sends an angel. This angel leads Peter out of prison. And notice what Peter does the moment he is released from prison. It's in Acts chapter 12, verse 12. When Peter realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. This is the first time that we encounter Mark in the New Testament. And here, he is only used, his name is only used as a description to differentiate his mother Mary from the other Marys that are in the New Testament. We know that Mark's mom's name is Mary and that the Jerusalem church significantly meets in her house. Now, because of this, we can be confident that Mark, while he was growing up, undoubtedly knew the apostles. He knew Peter. He knew John. He knew James before he passed away. He knew these people while he was growing up because his mom hosted the church in her house. But that's all we know of Mark at this point in Acts chapter 12. It's not until a few years later, Acts chapter 12 skips a couple uh, years. As it gets to the end of the chapter, we see Mark appear again. At this point, Paul and Barnabas, they are uh, pastors up in Antioch, a couple hundred miles away, and they bring this benevolent gift down to Jerusalem to, to help alleviate some of the poverty in Jerusalem. And notice what verse 25 of Acts chapter 12 tells us about their trip back to Antioch. It says this, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Up to this point, Mark has spent much, most, of all, most or all of his life in Jerusalem. He has spent his life rubbing shoulders with the leaders of the church, and now he is brought to Antioch, this church on the the frontier of the gospel uh, expansion. And he's brought there to serve the church alongside Paul and Barnabas. We may wonder why exactly Mark is chosen to to go to Antioch, and it's probably because he is Barnabas' cousin. Colossians chapter 4, Paul is writing years later, and he tells us that Mark is actually Barnabas' cousin. It says this, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, 
the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instruction. If he comes to you, welcome him. So now we see that Mark is serving the church in Antioch, not in Jerusalem, and he serves there for a couple years. And then after a couple years, God calls Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, and they are sent out from Antioch around AD 47 or 48. And we notice that Mark actually goes with them, Acts chapter 13. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. The name John here is referring to Mark. John was a common Jewish name. Mark was a common Roman name. And since they are in Jewish territory, his name is called John. It's the exact same thing if you notice in the book of Acts with Paul. Paul is sometimes called Saul. He's sometimes called Paul. Saul is a Jewish name. Paul is a Roman one. And his name would vary based off of where he was doing ministry. The exact same thing is taking place here with John, whose other name is Mark. But notice what Mark is doing on this missionary journey. What is his role on this missionary journey according to this text? It's the role of an assistant. Mark is brought along to be an assistant to help Paul and Barnabas on their missionary journey. He's not a teacher. He's not a leader. He's just there to help out in any way that he can and to learn in the process, to continue to develop in his own faith alongside his cousin and Paul on this missionary journey. But unfortunately, his time with Paul and Barnabas don't last very, doesn't last very long. Acts 13 tells us uh, that at one point, he soon leaves Paul and Barnabas and their missionary endeavor, and he actually goes back home to Jerusalem. Acts chapter 13, verse 13. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, the text doesn't tell us why Mark left. It could, because, could be because of his mother. It could be because he just wasn't ready for the mission field. We shouldn't speculate, but it is clear that later on, Paul sees this as a massive issue. Paul says, sees this as a serious problem. He actually sees Mark as someone who is untrustworthy. He sees someone as a deserter. He sees him as someone that he can't trust, that he can't depend on, and so he refuses to let Mark join him on later missionary trips. And in fact, Mark is the reason why Paul and Barnabas, this great missionary team, they actually have a falling out, and they go their separate ways before Paul's second missionary trip just a few years later. Acts chapter 15 says this, And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with him John called Mark. Remember, he's cousins to Mark. But Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. While Paul and Silas head west, and they bring the gospel to, to places that it's never been before, they go to, to Macedonia, to Philippi, to Thessalonica, to Greece itself, Barnabas and Mark actually return to Galatia. They return to where they had done ministry previously and, and do ministry there. And that's the last we hear of Mark for about 10 years. We don't know what takes place in those 10 years. After he leaves with his cousin Barnabas, it, it, but it's clear that the 
based off of the, the rest of Mark's life, that the, the, the failures of his, the beginning of his ministry career do not define his life. They do not define the rest of his life. Mark, later, uh, later God's providence leads him to partner with Paul again. And one of the most beautiful texts in the Bible is if you take it in, in, uh, in hand with Acts chapter 15. Acts 15, remember, Mark and, and, and Paul, they're just not getting along. Paul says, I, I can't go on this missionary journey with Mark because he's deserted me. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 4, at the end of Paul's life, notice what he has to say about the man who once abandoned him. He says this, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. At some point in Mark's life, we see that there is this moment where Paul and Barnabas, their paths, excuse me, Paul and Mark, their paths cross again. And, and they are reconciled to one another. Maybe Mark has matured. Maybe Paul has matured. And they partner together for the gospel again. Colossians 4, which we read earlier, is written by Paul while he is imprisoned in, in Rome. And we note, as we read that text, that Mark is actually sitting with him in prison. It's through God's own providential ways that Mark himself ends up in Rome. And we don't know exactly how, but he ends up in Rome and he knows, he discovers that Paul himself is in Rome. But what's more, that Paul himself is imprisoned in Rome. And so he goes and he ministers to Paul there. They are reconciled together and they become partners in ministry once again. Now there's one other text that, that mentions Mark's name. It reveals to us a little bit about what happens in Mark's life. I think it fills in some of the gaps of, of what we don't know about Mark in between that, that missionary journey with his cousin Barnabas and when he shows up in Rome about 10 years later. It's found in 1 Peter. 1 Peter, written by the Apostle Peter. Remember, Peter's ministry at the beginning of his life was focused on Jerusalem. It was uh, focused on Judea. So he spent a lot of time in Jerusalem. And, and remember, he would have known Mark. The church met in Mark's mom's home, and so he would have known Mark. He would have encountered him. And when Mark returns to Jerusalem after traveling with Paul and Barnabas, it is likely that he would have encountered Peter again. And it's even more likely that, based off of what we'll see here in a second, that Peter decides to disciple Mark, to come alongside him. 1 Peter chapter 5 says this, She who was at Babylon who has likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. This text is very important for helping us to understand Mark. In the first century, uh, the, the church didn't like to refer to Rome as Rome. They actually referred to Rome as Babylon. It was a way to refer to the evil of Rome without getting themselves in trouble. And so it was kind of a code word. So what, what he's saying here, uh, what Peter is saying here is she, referring to the church, the church who is in Rome, those who are chosen, just like you that I'm writing to, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. First Peter is written from Rome, it's written from Peter, and he's, written, he's writing while Mark is in Rome with him. So putting the pieces together, here's what I think happens with Mark. Uh, in Acts chapter 13, he, he leaves behind Paul, he leaves behind Barnabas, he returns to Jerusalem, possibly because he wasn't mature enough in his faith to handle the pressures of ministry. He returns to Jerusalem, 
And while he is in Jerusalem, he becomes of special interest to the apostle Peter, just like Timothy is to Paul. Peter pours himself into Mark to the point where, where Peter can look at Mark and say, you know what, you are like a son to me. And Mark becomes Peter's most trustworthy ministry assistant. Now, at some point, we know that the apostle Peter heads to Rome to bring the gospel there, and it is extremely likely that Mark goes with him, that, that Peter asks Mark to, uh, to go to Rome with him. And it's here where Mark probably spends the rest of his life, the, the majority of the rest of his life. And it's here where he eventually interacts with the apostle Paul. He eventually is, is reconciled with him. And it's from here, from, from Rome, the capital of the world at that point, where he writes the gospel of Mark. Now, what can we learn about Mark the person? Just these little glimpses of Mark, the, the failures of his life, and, and later the faithfulness of the end of his life, they, we're going to see that they influence the way he writes the gospel. They influence this gospel and, and, and the way he describes the disciples. And I think, as we sum up his life, it reminds us of this truth. Mark's life and his gospel are a reminder that no matter how big your failure, God's grace is greater. No matter how big your failure, God's grace is greater. Maybe you can relate to Mark. Maybe you can relate to Mark because he is someone who grew up in the church. That you, like Mark, had every opportunity to follow God, every opportunity to honor him with your life, but for one reason or another, you made a mess of your life. Or perhaps you didn't grow up in the church. Unlike Mark, you didn't grow up in the church. There were opportunities to follow God. And the mess you made of your life is all that you really knew. Mark's life reminds us that your failures and my failures do not have to be the final word. Because God is gracious. God is patient. God is merciful. And those things can overcome even the greatest of failures. So how does this knowledge of who Mark as a person, how does this knowledge help us to better understand the gospel itself? Well, remember, each gospel is written with a specific purpose. The, the specific purpose of Mark's gospel is to remind us that Jesus is the Christ, but not just that he is the Christ, not just that he is the king, but he is a crucified, he is a suffering king. And as his disciples, we follow him on the path of the cross. And I think that understanding Mark's personal context, understanding where he wrote the gospel, understanding when he wrote the gospel, are helpful in helping us understand this gospel better in at least two ways. First, understanding its context, and then second, understanding its themes. First is context. Understanding the life of Mark helps us understand or, or figure out a few key facts about this book and its context. A couple important facts for us. We've already seen, uh, we're going to fly through these, you know, just uh, a minute or two. Um, <clears throat> as we've already seen, the, the author of this gospel is Mark, but Mark may not have experienced or seen any of the things that Jesus does, which he records in his gospel. And so he has to, to rely on a, a, an eyewitness source for his gospel. And what we know based off of the relationship between Mark and Peter, it's overwhelmingly likely that Mark relied on Peter as his source for writing this gospel. His, he relies on Peter, and in one sense, the gospel of Mark is, is almost like it's the gospel of Peter. 
It's being written by Mark, but it is relying on Peter's experiences. Mark knew Peter for decades. He grew up knowing Peter. He would have ministered with Peter in Rome. And Mark paints Peter and the other disciples, as we're going to see in, in the Gospel of Mark, in a very harsh light. The, the, the disciples just are very thick. They don't understand who Jesus is. And it wouldn't make sense unless this was a form of self-criticism from Peter and the other disciples. So we see that it was written by Mark, but it was most likely from a source like Peter. Mark was written while he and Peter were living in Rome. This is the place where it would have taken place, where it would have been written. And if that were the case, early to mid-60s is when it would have been written. Why is that significant for us beyond just a piece of random trivia? Peter was martyred in the year 64 AD. He was martyred in Rome uh, under a new wave of persecution from the emperor Nero. It's most likely that Mark wrote this gospel right around that exact same time, either right before or right after Peter's death. And he writes it to record some of the thoughts of one of the eyewitnesses of Jesus for subsequent generations. Now, being written in the early to mid-60s means that Mark is likely the first gospel to have been written. Many of the parallels that we see between Matthew, Mark, and Luke show us that Matthew and Luke actually relied on the gospel of Mark when they were writing their own gospels. We know that Mark and Luke knew each other based off of Colossians chapter 4. They met each other at least in Rome in the 60s. Matthew and Mark probably knew each other from decades earlier when Mark lived in Jerusalem. And so he was the, his, this gospel that we're looking at is the first gospel that was written. Original audience for Mark, as we mentioned, this gospel was written in Rome. It was probably written for Gentile believers in Rome, as well as in the surrounding area. It was written for those who had converted out of paganism, those who didn't have any experience with Judaism. And this is evidenced by the fact that, that Mark takes uh, great lengths to explain some of the Jewish practices that are happening in the gospel of Mark. Now, significantly, as I mentioned earlier, this is a gospel that was written around the exact same time as a new wave of persecution that was hitting the church, was happening specifically in the central Roman Empire uh, under the, the emperor Nero. And this gospel was written to help Christians understand how to live out their faith, even in the midst of suffering. This is, this is helpful to understand why Mark spends so much time focusing on the significance of Jesus, not just as the Messiah, not just as the Christ, but Jesus as the Christ on the cross. For those who are suffering, who are experiencing suffering in their own life, the gospel of Mark is written, at least in part, as a reminder that they are following the exact same path as their master. Now think about our context today. Think about the suffering, the hardship that you experience, whether it's for the gospel or whether it's not, just the hardship you experience in your life. The gospel of Mark is written to remind you that what you are experiencing is not an aberration. The hardship that you feel in your life is not something that good Christians shouldn't experience, but it's normal. That's what Mark writes to describe. 
Those are some facts about the gospel of Mark. They help us to understand the, the context, that they come to, to light from understanding Mark as a per- person. But more important, as we dive into this book, is to see how understanding Mark helps us to identify some themes, some emphases found in this gospel. And so let's just look at two that are found, uh, two primary themes that, co- that will come up again and again as we study this gospel over the next few months. The first is concerning Jesus, this theme concerning Jesus. As I mentioned earlier, the gospel of Mark is probably the clearest of all the gospels in describing that Jesus is a king, but he is a king on the cross. Notice our sermon series title, The King on the Cross. That is the focus of Mark. The, uh, the, the gospel of Mark can be summed up really with these two phrases, the king and the cross. Mark chapter 1 through chapter 8 focus on one question. Who is Jesus? That's the the question that the the people in Jerusalem, the people in Galilee, the people in Judea are wrestling with. Who is this Jesus? The gospel starts with a declaration of who this Jesus is, remember? Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Here, Jesus is described to be the Son of God, and this is displayed time and time and time again in these first eight chapters. Mark 1 through 8 are filled with story after story after story of people being amazed at who Jesus is, marveling at who Jesus is. The question, who is Jesus, is even found on the lips of his disciples when Jesus calms the storm in Mark chapter 4. And they, the disciples, were filled with great fear, And said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And it is this question, this question of who is Jesus, that is finally answered at the midpoint of the book, at the the transition point of the book. So the first half of the book, asking the question, who is Jesus? Then we get to Mark chapter 8, and we see the disciples finally get it. They finally say, we know who you are. Hear these words, Mark chapter 8. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. After Peter's confession of who Jesus is, after the the question of who is Jesus is answered in the gospel of Mark, we see this abrupt shift in the gospel. The first eight chapters focus on who is Jesus. The last last eight chapters, uh, chapters 9 through 16, focus on something completely different. In chapters 1 through 8, Jesus performs many miracles. He's always on the move. He's always healing. He's always casting out demons. And while some of that still happens in the last half of the book, the, the confession that Peter makes about who Jesus is shifts the focus. And now it's not who is Jesus, but now it's what does that mean? We understand who Jesus is, that he is the Christ, but what does it mean that he is the Christ? Do you wonder why Jesus tells his disciples to not tell anyone who he is in that text we just read? This is a high point. Jesus has confessed to be the Christ. He's confessed to be the Messiah, the one the people of Israel are waiting for, and you'd think that it would lead to this moment where Jesus says, all right, now go tell everyone. And instead he says, don't tell a single soul about this. The answer 
to why Jesus does that is because people do not understand what it means that Jesus is the Christ. They picture the Christ as a conquering king, not a crucified one. And so the last eight chapters of the book of Mark help us to grasp what it means when we say that Jesus is the Christ, and it culminates with Jesus' death on the cross. The book comes to an end describing Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection, and in the midst of that crucifixion, it contains this very powerful statement, a declaration of who Jesus is. It's on the lips of a Gentile, Mark chapter 15, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. It's the only other time that Jesus is called the son of God. And the reason why it's found right here is because Mark wants to make it abundantly clear to us that it is impossible to understand who Jesus is without also holding to the cross. Jesus himself makes it abundantly clear how important the cross is to his ministry when he declares his purpose for coming to earth. Mark chapter 10, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Mark asks us two questions. First, he asks us, who is Jesus? We first have to answer this question ourselves. As we look at the gospel of Mark over the next several months, we must ask ourselves, who is Jesus? We have to understand that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God, but we cannot stay there. And that's why Mark asks us a second question. He asks us this question, what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? It means that Jesus, the King, is crucified on a cross that he gives himself as a ransom for many, that he delivers his people from the sting of sin and death. It's abundantly clear throughout the entirety of the gospel of Mark. Focus on Jesus, that Jesus is a Christ, but he is a crucified one, that he is a king, but he is a king on the cross. And the second purpose or emphasis of the book of Mark is concerning us, his disciples. One thing that will become abundantly clear as we study the gospel of Mark is that Jesus' disciples don't fully grasp, they don't fully understand who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. This gospel forces us to ask this question, how are we to live in light of who Jesus is? How are we to live in light of who Jesus is? Jesus' disciples, those who are closest to him, are, are constantly left wondering who Jesus is. They're constantly missing the point of who Jesus is and of his teachings. Mark chapter 4, verse 13. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? His disciples, those who are closest to him, they, they miss the point of his miracles. Mark chapter 8. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? 
And as you read that, you may say, I don't understand either. Which is fine, we'll get to that eventually, in a couple of years. When they finally figure out that Jesus is the Christ, we get to Mark chapter 8, they finally figure out that Jesus is the Christ, and they begin having delusions of grandeur. They have no idea what it actually means to follow this Jesus, that it does not lead to exaltation, but it instead leads to picking up their own cross. This is very, very clear. Mark chapter 8, right after Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, what takes place? Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, and then right after that, Peter, or we have the first confession uh, from, from Jesus himself that he is going to go to the, cro- to the cross. And how does Peter respond? Let's take a look. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. This is the first time, by the way, that Jesus actually pr- predicts his death. In the, in the gospel. Mark lays out right before this, we have Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. And then right after that, in the very next birth, verse, Jesus begins to describe that he is going to the cross. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Why is it that Jesus calls Peter Satan? It seems abundantly harsh. It seems like over-the-top reaction from Jesus. Why does he call him Satan? It's because he rejects the idea that Jesus as the king must go to the cross. The disciples do not understand this. They do not understand that they also must carry their crosses. Notice the juxtaposition found in Mark chapter 10 between Jesus. He makes another prediction of him going to the cross and his disciples' reaction, the the desires of his disciples' hearts. Notice this, this contrast. Jesus said, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do? And and they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. They just don't understand it. They don't understand that Jesus, the Christ, means that Jesus will go to the cross. Mark writes to a group of people that are suffering at the hands of the Roman Empire, and he wants them to rest assured that their suffering is not an aberration, that it is not something that is abnormal, that they are not doing something wrong because their life is hard. They follow a crucified king. And so for Christians, we pursue humility. We do not pursue glory. Too often we are like James and John. We pursue our own glory. We pursue our own exaltation. We pursue our own comfort rather than following in obedience the path of the crucified king. So we pursue humility. We do not pursue glory. As Christians, we should expect opposition. Jesus faces opposition throughout the gospel of Mark. From the very beginning, he is facing opposition from the religious elite and the secular government from almost day one. And so we also should not be surprised when we face opposition as Christians, when we face hostility as we attempt to follow the crucified Messiah. 
because in doing so, we follow our Savior's path. And as Christians, we can expect suffering in this life. It can be suffering for the sake of the gospel, but it also can just be suffering that is as simple as hardship that comes with living in a broken world. Uh, a very personal and, and relatively shallow example of this from my life this past week. Uh, like many of you, we had a fair bit of water in our basement uh, from the rains on, on Wednesday night and Thursday morning. And, and as I was wearing myself out, ripping out carpet, throwing furniture away, throwing books and toys away, on more than one occasion, I thought to myself, come on, God, why me? Come on, God, why, why us? And in those moments... I was essentially saying the exact same thing as James and John, the exact same thing as Peter. When Peter tells Jesus that you don't need to go to the cross because you're the Christ, when James and John asked Jesus to sit at the right hand uh, and the left hand of him in glory, they are saying, we don't want suffering, we want glory. And so often we say the same thing. For me, I was rejecting the notion that suffering is a normal part of the Christian life. Glory doesn't come, at least not right away. Suffering, even the suffering of the lows of life, the hardships that just come with living in a broken world are a part of the Christian life. And Mark writes this gospel to assure us that if your life is hard, it doesn't necessarily mean you are doing something wrong. Because Jesus was the king and he ended up on the cross. And yet through it all, in the midst of the times where we don't get it, in the midst of the times where we pursue our own glory, or we say we don't want anything to do with the hardship and the suffering of life, we don't want the, the crucified king, we want the, the, the king who, who shows up in glory. We don't want any of this crucified mess. For those of us who fail, there is unbelievable patience, there is unbelievable mercy that is found from God in the gospel of Mark. You see, the disciples in Mark, they fail time and time and time again. They fail to grasp who Jesus is, and once they understand who Jesus is, they, they fail to grasp what that means. They, they fail to follow him faithfully, and yet through it all, Jesus never abandons them. And Jesus is never going to abandon you either. The path of the disciple is the path of the cross. As we study the book of Mark over the coming months, I pray that we would remember that we follow a crucified king and that the path that we follow is one that leads us to pick up our own crosses. The suffering that we experience in life, no matter how great, no matter how small it may be, it does not come to us unexpected, but we can face it with full confidence in life because we will one day face eternal glory alongside Christ Jesus in the age to come. The Gospel of Mark is my favorite gospel. It has been for years, ever since I had the chance to teach through it in Uganda. Uh, it's just a, a beautiful book because even with how short it is, even with how brief it is, it forces us to do a whole lot of wrestling with our lives. It forces us to wrestle and come to grips with who Jesus is and what that means, but also what that means for us as we follow him each and every day. And I hope, I pray that as we study this book, God is going to use it to awaken in each of us a passionate desire 
that even as we face hardship, even as we face suffering in this life, that we can follow him and know him more. The cost of following the king is great. The cost of the cross is great, but it is one of abundant mercy. And at that cross, we find grace and patience and understanding. The cost is great, but it is infinitely worth it. The path of the, cro- uh, the, path of the disciple is the path of the cross. Let's pray. God, we do ask that you would be with us as we study this book. Thank you, God, for how good you are to us. The mercy and the patience that you show us. God, you are good. Help us to learn from this book. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.